Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating. Even if you toss me five bucks, it makes me feel better and as if you actually care about me. Visit www.writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on support the blog to donate either by giving to GoFundMe through PayPal, or you can support me by buying me a coffee, which trust me, is dearly needed. Today's guest is Elizabeth Tammy author of Outrun the Wind, which released from Flux in 2018, and The Weight of a Soul, coming in December of 2019. Elizabeth studies creative writing and journalism at Mercer University, where she works for her college's newspaper and literary magazine. She joined me today to talk about landing a publishing deal without an agent and achieving publication as a teenager. Need help with your book manuscript? Look no further. Freelance editor Raven Ekman offers affordable reader and developmental editing packages and is open for business. Check out a newlookonbooks.com for package details, client testimonies, and more. It's time to get that manuscript ready to query or publish. Listeners are always interested to learn more about how published authors made that leap from being aspiring writers. So tell us a little bit about your publishing journey. I know that it's not the classic tale because you actually negotiated your first publishing deal on your own without an agent. I'm a weird exception. And so I try to make sure everyone understands that this is not normal. Um, I just got, you know, I I guess kind of lucky, kind of a weird situation. It worked out well. It's definitely kind of unorthodox for traditional publishing. In high school, I wrote a truly awful book. It was my first one, Um, just really bad. But I learned so much, you know, just about how to finish a project and how the publishing industry works. I had a lot of unsuccessful querying with that. I came to college and I already had a solid book idea for what Outrun the Wind would eventually become. And I just wrote that down across my first semester of freshman year. I promise I wasn't a total social recluse or anything. (laughs) I was able to get a draft down, edited it with my critique partners and everything. And then I was ready to query again. And I sort of threw myself into the process from a lot of different angles, even though it always boils down to traditional querying. I went to like a Writer's Digest conference and pitch agents in person. I did your traditional cold query emails. But the thing that actually ended up being the winning deal for me was through Twitter runs a contest called hashtag pitmad started by Brenda Drake. So basically, you just have to condense your story into a tweet. And agents and editors are sort of cycling through uh, the hashtag and favoriting the ones that they're interested in hearing more about. So it's really just a foot in the door for traditional querying. An acquisitions editor at Flux stumbled across my tweet, Kelsey Thompson, she's lovely, and she happened to really like Greek mythology and was interested in the story. And so she uh, requested the first few chapters, and then that turned into a full manuscript request. Ten months later, we finally had a contract ready. Flux is a smaller publishing house, but they do a really good job. Outrun the Wind is still in Barnes and Nobles nationwide. I just got really lucky that Kelsey happened to be <laughs> scrolling through Twitter at the same time that I posted and that we crossed paths because I could tell from our first phone call together that she had the same vision I did for the book and its future. And we had a great time working together on revisions and it worked out super well. 
that being said, I have a lot of great resources. I'm a college student, so my creative writing professors and some local authors helped me navigate the contract and everything and be good advocates for me and letting me know what to expect and what to ask for. Flux was also super helpful. They understood that I didn't have an agent and I was able to get a deal that I liked and a deal that I felt comfortable with. I knew even going into it that it was just a super weird situation to be in because traditional authors should have agents. It's been super wild and unexpected, but it worked out really well and I couldn't have asked for a better debut experience. That's really cool. So you were are a published writer at the age of 19, 20, 21? I signed the contract when I was 19. Wow. By the time it came out, I was 20. I think, so. <laughs> Good <Yeah>. for you. <laughs> Good for <Yeah>. you. <laughs> that's amazing. I, that's awesome. And I want to point out, because my listeners know that I also sat down and wrote a novel when I was in college. Yeah. I did not get published until <laughs> 10 years after that. But it's because I didn't do what you did. I didn't learn about querying. I didn't learn mm-hmm. about the industry. I didn't go to writing conferences. I was just like, I am a special person that doesn't have to do those things. I have written an amazing <laughs> book and none of those things were true. Also, this was in 1998. So uh, we yeah. didn't have all the resources that, that you have true. as far as the internet and, and all of those things, all the just glut of information out out there. Um, However, that's no excuse. I could have been published sooner (laughs) if I had wanted to do the research and the work and the actual grit of it like you did. So congratulations. You obviously knew what you were doing. Thank you. That's so awesome. So what's your major? What are you majoring in? I am a double major in creative writing, no surprise, but also journalism. Nice. So, yes, <laughs> interesting combination, but I enjoy it. <laughs> oh, good for you. I was a double major in English literature and uh, philosophy of religion. So, um, oh, cool. Yeah, really cool. Not majors that you like, people weren't snapping me up for jobs after I graduated. But <laughs> it's all useful in my yeah. writing, I can tell you that. Sure. So that's cool. What a great story. What a great publication story. So you said you're circling back now. So you are now as a published author with a contract and a release under your belt, querying, looking to get an agent. I love Flux, love working with them. But I think regardless of what your publishing history is, it's always good to have someone in your corner. Moving ahead, I'd like to have that type of advocacy and expertise on my side. So, Of course, of course. So. Well, and also agents do so much uh, for my listeners. They yeah, do so yeah. much more than just represent you in the deal. Like They do help guide your career. And I for know sure. that mine in particular, we've been together for man, almost 10 years now. I am constantly bouncing ideas off of her because it becomes a question not of, is this a good idea, but is this Mm -hmm. the right idea to follow up your last release with? Is it too divergent? Is it too similar? If you want a career, you're thinking both about the future and the past and positioning yourself within your own list at some point. It is not something that you really think about before you get into it. And having an agent there for all of those things is just uh, absolutely, absolutely without parallel. My agent has been on Mm -hmm. maternity leave for a few months. And so I've been a very good client and I have not emailed her and bothered her at all. And I can tell you, I cannot wait for her to come back. (laughs) 
<laughs> because you have so so many questions just pop up over the yeah. course of everything, anything, little little things like uh, paperback releases and I have this event coming up. Should I do this? Should I do that? You know, all these things that I bounce off my agent all the time. I you realize now I knew how indispensable she was to me. But now after <laughs> I have been without her for a few months, I realize that I'm just like, oh my gosh, I... Exactly. It's like, I feel like I'm in this big ocean all by myself. So um, oh. <laughs> I know that I could email her if I, if I needed, if I really needed something, I know that I could, but um, nothing that I've needed has been imperative. So I'm just like, I'm going to be a good client. I am not going to bother her and her baby. <laughs> I'm just going to send her an extremely long bulleted email when she comes back. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. So you mentioned Greek myths. Your book, Outrun the Wind, is based heavily on Greek myth. Can you talk a little bit about why these stories continue to resonate with readers thousands of years later? Greek mythology, these stories are, you know, super epic. And I think they do stick with us for a reason. And, you know, of course, plenty of historiographical reasons come into play as well. We do have to consider what was deemed significant enough to be translated or copied down and who made those decisions. Regardless of that, I think Greek myths especially just show such a wide spectrum of human emotion on like such grandiose creative scales. And mythology in general is having a moment right mm-hmm. now. And I think that's partly because myths are, you know, essentially something that has been passed down through all these generations before us. But at the same time, they're also like a time capsule of what once was and this common thread that we've all got access to. And I think that's really incredible. These myths are living history. And above all, I think that myths are doing so well right now because we're paying more attention to who told these stories Mm -hmm. first. And with our modern perspective now, we can imagine more ways that these stories could go or might have actually gone You know, there are authors like Madeline Miller and Emily Hauser out there who are taking these stories that we think we know, but telling them from different perspectives or with different twists. That mix of these old sweeping stories with fresh modern perspectives is super exciting and intoxicating. And I love reading and writing them. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So with my major of English lit and religion and philosophy, I was pretty steeped in myth and everything that goes along with it. Myth in general, there are so many stories that, as you were saying, when you think about a different perspective, you think about a different angle. And of course, again, as you were saying, who made the decision about what got written down and kept and what perspective was it written from? Originally, it was written from the man's perspective. There are these wonderful opportunities to reimagine these stories. And I think it's really cool. Coming up, the different skills at work in both journalism and creative writing. The greatest treasure, a most dangerous magic. Growing up with a traveling circus, Genevieve Flannery is accustomed to a life most teenagers could never imagine. But when her mother, Delia, falls to her death during a show, she leaves behind a dangerous inheritance that forces Jenny into a frightening new reality. Her life now interrupted by the terrors only Delia could see. As the visions around Jenny grow stronger and her magical legacy becomes even more menacing, she's not sure who she can trust. And if she fails to secure Delia's ancient secret, Jenny could lose everyone she holds dear. Slight by Jennifer Summersby. Why don't you talk a little bit about the particular story that Outrun the Wind is based on? Run the Wind is a very loose (laughs) reimagining of the story of Atalanta from Greek mythology. Her story kind of varies a bit depending on who told it, what translation you're looking at, of course. Atalanta basically was 
either abandoned at birth or lost at birth. Some controversy with that. But anyway, the point is her father somehow finds her again when she is probably a teenager, a young woman of marriageable mm-hmm. age, though. And so he brings her back to the kingdom of Arcadia, usually, saying that she has to get married, but she really doesn't want that. So she's like, okay, well, I'll marry whoever can beat me in a foot race. <laughs> nice. And, and so all these suitors come over to Arcadia and want to race her. And sure enough, she is beating them all. In some versions, she's even killing the ones that she beats. But eventually, there's this guy who is using these divinely infused golden apples <laughs> given to him by the gods. These apples, when he throws them when he's racing Atalanta, makes her lose. And then, of course, she ends up having to marry him. In some versions, apparently, she does want to marry him, but I don't know about that. So eventually, essentially, Hippomenes uses divine trickery to trick Atalanta into losing the race. They end up married. Some versions say they ended up turning into lions because they had sex in some god's temple and that wasn't good. Anyway, that's like the quick and dirty general thing that seems to stay common throughout all the (laughs) different versions of her story. So when I read it for the first time, I was like, oh, wow, Atalanta sounds really cool. What kind of a power move is it to say that you'll just marry whoever can beat you in a foot race? Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. I wanted to know who this girl was that clearly understood her abilities and her worth in this era where she would have been deeply suppressed. But so much of her story felt nonsensical or unsatisfying to me. I just had a lot of questions and I felt like big chunks of her story were just being left out or glossed over and I just didn't understand a lot of it and I hated the ending Mm -hmm. and I couldn't stop thinking about it. That's what I was thinking about that summer and then I show up here at Mercer University and over my first semester I slowly but surely type out my version just because I couldn't stop thinking Mm -hmm. about it and getting mad about it. I really loved the idea of the races and I wanted to keep that big part of the story because that's my favorite part about the original mythology hence the title is Outrun the Wind Uh, Mm -hmm. lots of running involved (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah I wanted to know like why would she kill the men she raised why is she so against marriage who is Hippomenes and why is he so obsessed with getting out of Atlanta Outrun the Wind was my answer to a lot of those questions that I had So this particular story just resonated with you on a level as a reader and as someone with an imagination that you were just like kind of taking it in your own direction and wondering, well, what if? If we have any like classicist students out there, they might be totally horrified by my version because I definitely, you know, changed a lot of aspects of it. But I think even if you knew the original story about Atlanta, you hyper zoomed into the background and that was what I was going for. But that's part of what has always attracted me to these stories. I've always loved the story of um, Hippolyta, and she was the Amazon mm-hmm. queen. Everything yeah. with her life, right up until she got married. Uh, so <laughs> I am with you on that. I love to read these stories and imagine a different route, particularly for the female characters. Uh, I've also sure. always mm-hmm. been a big fan of um, Persephone and mm-hmm. her story. And her mother is Demeter and her uncle is Hades. She's basically like kidnapped and taken underground and said, <laughs> and Hades is like, even though it's his niece, because the gods are screwy. And he's like, you're going to be with me down here now. And good Lord knows what all happened there. Demeter right. is just like, wait a minute. No, I need her back. And so they work out a deal. And that was the Greek representation of why we get spring. Because Demeter, Mm -hmm. when her daughter is away, she's so done being around that it's going to be winter now. The story, actually, for being what it was, is very sympathetic towards Demeter. But, of course, 
because she's a mother. So that's a good role for you then is to be a mother. But nobody's ever talking about what Persephone thinks about this. It's like, well, she was just (laughs) kidnapped and raped and taken underground for months at a time. And (laughs) yeah, I just love mythology. There's a lot of different aspects you can pick and choose and decide how you want to like reinterpret or reimagine it's just endless opportunities for stories there. Yes. And I think it's clear from the record that even at the time when these were part of the culture, people were doing their own things with them because even the story of Persephone, there are versions where she's happy and she likes being the queen of the underworld and she thinks it's pretty cool. And there are versions where she's like, holy shit, I'm actually in hell now, right? And she hates it and she wants to be back with her mother. And so I think it's interesting that different versions have been passed down to us. So it's like people have been doing their own things with these stories for for a long time. Like, that was almost their purpose. So tell us about some of those different skills that go into writing fiction versus being a journalist. I'm sure that there's some crossover, yet also there are going to be different skills that are distinct to each style. So talk a little bit about that if you can. So being a double major in creative writing and journalism is a little weird sometimes, but, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I I really do enjoy both of my majors. thought that they would be like night and day going into it. They're very cohesive, and I was surprised to learn that it's actually a relatively common double major for students to have. Really? I thought I was doing something super revolutionary, and then when I told my advisor I was prepared to get all this lashback and whatever, and then they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we have a lot of students that do that. At the end of the day, they are both about telling stories, but in journalism, I think the biggest difference is that I have to try very actively to remove myself from whatever story I'm trying to tell. With fiction, that's quite the opposite. Fiction, it is easier to write in a lot of ways because, you know, whatever I say goes. Sometimes all that freedom and detail and intricacies can get kind of overwhelming and daunting. And that is what I'm glad to be a journalism student as well, because Mm -hmm. I think there is something refreshing about just presenting the facts. And I also really love getting to do interviews and talking to people that I otherwise wouldn't have the chance to speak with. So I'm a junior right now. Previously, my last two years, I did a lot with general news, reporting on local businesses or student governments. This year, I've actually gotten to step up into my first editorial position for the arts and entertainment section, Hmm. which has even more crossover with my creative writing degree because it's less about, you know, hard news and I've gotten to do lots of uh, editing and writing about fun stuff like local shows going on and entertainment to be on the lookout for and stuff like that. I think despite the differences between creative writing and journalism, both are just about telling stories. You learn a lot about how to structure and the order required to make things make sense and to give the appropriate amount of like build up versus payoff. What's the information that you need to present first and how do you need to present it so that they'll understand and appreciate what comes later, stuff like that. I've definitely found some common ground between them both. I appreciate the differences, but there's definitely some similarity that I wasn't expecting to find. Is it hard for you to just report the facts without trying to create a story, which of course is always going to be somewhat (laughs) colored by yourself? I've been very, very conscious about having like two different (laughs) mindsets that I have. Like I have my journalism, Elizabeth, and creative writing, Elizabeth, that I'm pretty good at wearing the respective hats. I'm so scared about doing journalism wrong. I'm very, very conscious about making sure that I'm trying to not include any bias. 
is I tend to be more on the human interest side. So I'm not doing anything super controversial, right? which has helped. <laughs> it can be hard, but I think because I came to college knowing that these were going to be my two majors, I think I was just so obsessed with making sure that I got each one right. I seem to be mostly in the realm of arts and entertainment and human interest. Let the subjects do the talking, which is always my favorite type of journalism to do, being an outlet for someone else to share their story. And I'm sure that you also learn how to ask the right questions to draw people out and to lead them into whatever direction that you are looking to take the narrative of the story, even though it is still factual. Is that a skill that you learn then as you are doing interviews and uh, kind of growing as a journalist? I hope at least. I think I've improved a bit uh, since my freshman year with preparing interview questions and being able to come up with questions on the fly. What's the type of question that you need to ask your subjects to get the best answers from them? It's basically, you never ask anyone a yes or no question. You right. always have to phrase it like, you know, tell me about, can you talk about this, etc. Need to anticipate the questions that the readers might have about mm-hmm. this subject or this person. And you have to make sure that you're covering all your bases. That's so true. I can tell you so often when I am watching an interview or listening to a podcast or even reading an article, the subject will say something interesting and the interviewer doesn't follow up on it and I'm like what are you doing that was it right there like there's a whole story there I think that's definitely some a mistake I made when I was first starting out I'd write down my seven or eight questions and then I would just go through them yeah you write down your questions as reference points but you you can't just read them off you have to follow where the subject is taking you just from doing these podcast interviews, I have prepared questions, but then whatever one question will open up just a well of something that the interviewee will suddenly just talk about it for like 10 minutes and they'll take it somewhere else. And I've definitely hit on something that they really want to talk about. And maybe they didn't even know that they really Mm -hmm. wanted to talk about this. I've had interviews where after I edit the podcast together, the questions that I started out with, that I started asking them, aren't even relevant anymore. And I use my follow-ups for the actual podcast because it's more interesting. Like my initial questions are really just to begin a conversation and see where it goes. Although sometimes it does lead me astray. I ended up having a 15-minute conversation with someone about our love of the Black Stallion series covers from the 1980s. And it was a 15-minute conversation, and we were just shooting um, JPEGs back and forth. We're like, do you remember this one? Oh, yeah. Do you remember that one? I love that one. It's one of my favorites. It was 15 minutes, and it was so funny to listen That's to, hilarious. but, you know, it, it was not something that my general audience wanted to hear. Lastly, time management for a double major with a publishing contract, and where to find Elizabeth online. You are the second or third author I know that was published as a college student. And I think that's so awesome and wonderful, of course. But I also want to back up again the idea that you had done all this research. You weren't just writing. You were figuring out the publishing industry. Growing up in the digital age, there's just so many resources online. I've been really lucky to just have a Google search away. And there's such a helpful and welcoming writing community on Twitter, on Tumblr, everywhere, practically. I wrote my first manuscript in high school, and it was not good. Just through the act of doing that, I learned a lot. And when I was initially foolishly trying to get it published, doing the research that went into that, I got to go to like a writer's workshop with it and meet all these different people and learn how to structure a query letter and just everything. Thing, even though that book was not ultimately successful, 
I saw everything that I had done wrong (laughs) and I saw how I needed to tackle the process the second time around, which I think really helped. Like, in fact, I actually wrote the query letter for Hour on the Wind before I drafted to remind myself of what I was trying to write. It all boils down to the query letter at the end of the day. Yep, It's never too early, but it's also never too late to get into writing. And I think as long as you've got a story you want to tell, like there's no day like today. (laughs) Agreed. My earliest dream I know was to be an author, like Mm -hmm. in elementary school. But I kind of lost sight of it uh, because it just felt so impossible. Right. I love, love, love Percy Jackson. And I remember when the last book in Rick Riordan's Heroes of Olympus series came out, I sort of recognized how massive of an impact that book series had had on my upbringing. And (laughs) there's so much power behind those words and how drastically it impacted my life up to that point. And so not that I had aspirations like, oh my God, I'm going to be Rick Riordan. But it was just more so like, I want to be a part of this somehow in some capacity. And that was kind of what pushed me over the edge to be like, okay, if I keep saying I want to do this, I need to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And so let myself write terrible drafts because I know that I can't fix what isn't there. I love everything you're saying because I, too, as a young child, was like, yes, I know that I want to be a writer. This is what I want to do with my life. But it does seem impossible, right? Yeah. And it's not. And it's even not impossible (laughs) when you're in your teens. Like, it does happen. (laughs) And I think it's it's so lovely to... to hear that and to see it and to know that it can happen for people. I want to talk to you also about being an undergrad. What's your work balance like with a double major and a freaking writing career? It has been pretty wild. I haven't pushed myself past the breaking point or anything yet. I have had to push myself harder than I have before. And I Mm -hmm. think I've I've learned some decent time management skills. It's weird because I mean, I wouldn't consider being a full-time student necessarily more difficult than either working a full-time job or being a parent. And I know so many other authors who are doing one or both of those things. Right, right, and, right. And so it's like, I don't think it's necessarily that I'm in a worse off situation than them because we're all struggling to find the time to fit in writing and everything. But, you know, that being said, Outrun the Wind was written during my freshman year. And I think uh, most college students understand that freshman year is relatively relaxed compared to everything that comes after. Yep, yep. So it was definitely easier to find time to work on Outrun the Wind than it has been for my second book, The Weight of a Soul, uh, coming out in December. I sold that one uh, this past September on proposal. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, God, I have to actually write this thing uh, yeah. due in January. So like literally from September through the rest of the semester, I wrote maybe like a third to a half of the draft. And then I literally just, I didn't have time. So it was over winter break where I literally just had to sit down and write like 40,000 words. And it was not a super fun vacation, but I just had to, you know, you have to save your most of your writing time for breaks and weekends and stuff like that. But I mean, you learn how to make the time for it. I have had to adopt less sleep and more coffee into my schedule. But, (laughs) but, you know, my professors and family and friends have been unimaginably supportive and just the best cheerleaders. And uh, my school actually, like, threw a launch party for me uh, when Outrun the Wind came out. And that was, like, the best night ever. Being a student and being a writer is not easy, but it's still definitely worth it. And I don't think that I'm not in a worse situation than I would be if I was working a full-time job or had kids or something. You're right about that. And it's it's very uh, it's very mature of you to realize it. But at the same time, 
when I think about my college years and being a mm-hmm. English lit and a religion major, there was so much reading and writing involved yeah. in what I was doing. And so when you're a parent or if you're working a full-time job that isn't related to reading and writing, <laughs> you are still able to switch your hats maybe a little more easily, I think, yeah, because you're yeah, using, you're in a different realm. So I would think that when <laughs> both of your majors and your career are so heavily focused on reading and writing and processing, yeah. grinding the same gears all the time. Sometimes I'm like, I just don't want to be staring at Microsoft Word right now. Right. <laughs> I genuinely enjoy, you know, my majors in writing. So it hasn't been brutal, but, you know, you just kind of have to adopt these time management, switch off between different tasks to keep focused. I try to, you know, do other things too. I'm in an acapella group. I really love singing and performing. You have a new book coming out, The Weight of a Soul. So tell us about yeah, that. Yeah. What's up next for you? Yeah. So that was just announced, I think, a week or two ago. So I've been sitting on that since September, but uh, I finally got to share the news recently. I'm very excited. It's another standalone novel. It comes out December 3rd of this year, also from Flux. The story is pretty different from Outrun the Wind, but I enjoyed getting to branch out from Greek to Norse mythology. (laughs) It's sort of what I've deemed the darkest part of my heart. It's a very dark story, but so is Norse mythology. So it's been a ton of fun to work on. It's in the trenches of revisions right now, but I'm enjoying working on it and I'm very excited to share it. That's awesome. So tell us where people can find you online. So I am on Twitter and Instagram, just with my name, Elizabeth Tammy. Last name is spelled T-A-M-M-I, but I'm also on Tumblr. I run a young adult fiction blog where I review other books and just generally geek out about all things YA. Annabeth is terrified.tumblr.com. Very cool. Love to see you there. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Rider Rider Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. <laughs>